When trying to reason with faithful believers, especially religious extremists like creationists, we keep hearing the same old arguments over and over and over again, even though we know they've already been shown to be false, fraudulent, and or fallacious probably by everyone who's ever seen them. If you keep it up, you'll suspect that those who keep repeating these must surely know by now that all of these points have already been refuted a thousand times. I'm R.N. Ra, and this is The Pratt List. In an earlier episode of this series, we mentioned how those who believe in supernatural pseudoscience often try to rely on the fallacy of false equivalence. In this illustration, for example, we see a common claim that we're both looking at the same evidence, we're just interpreting it differently. However, in science, evidence is a body of objectively verifiable facts that are positively indicative of and or exclusively concordant with one available position over any other. So it is not even possible for the same fact to be evident of two different mutually exclusive conclusions at the same time. We have to look at every proposition and any alternatives as if each are competing hypotheses. If the same fact could be true in either case, then it's just a fact. It doesn't become evidence until it indicates one option or eliminates another. So we can't both be looking at the same evidence. And we're obviously not both looking at endogenous retroviruses, atavisms, transitional forms, physiological, anatomical, and molecular vestiges, ontogeny and developmental biology, protein functional redundancy, convergent phenotypes, mobile genes, observed speciation, or the myriad methods of dating geologic stratigraphy, nor any twin-nested hierarchy of phylogenetic clades. And those are just a brief hint of the evidence of evolution. So, what evidence do we have for creationism? Man-made mythology written by ignorant primitives who believed in magic and were absolutely wrong about every scientific claim they ever made because they obviously had no idea what they were talking about. That's it, and nothing else. Creationists who worship their sacred scripture insist that the claim be accepted as evidence of itself, but that's circular reasoning, another fallacy being a belief or argument that is unsound or invalid. There is no actual factual evidence of creation at all. Now, some believers pretend that there is evidence for their sacred beliefs, but they have to redefine what evidence means. If one adopts the philosophy that everything is an illusion, then evidence is not evident, because facts are not factual, because nothing can ever be objective, because everything is imaginary. Not kidding. There really are prominent religious apologists who actually do imply this in their arguments. Because they're okay with not having any evidence to back their beliefs, as long as they never have to acknowledge evidence that they're wrong. So they might say that evidence is ambiguous, which it can't be. By definition, evidence is factual, meaning objectively verifiable and indicative, so it can't be ambiguous or it wouldn't be evidence. Anecdotes and eyewitness testimony are the least reliable form of evidence, only valuable when supporting something else or in the absence of anything else, and that will be refuted by any other type of evidence that stands against it. Yet devotees demand that all that be turned upside down, as if the way you think you remember things could somehow override video surveillance showing otherwise. It doesn't work that way. Our memories aren't perfect. We're subject to confusion, distortion, delusion, and prejudicial bias, and we can't always be trusted to be truthful either. That's why we need objective confirmation from supportive witnesses or preferably evidence rather than relying solely on your own personal feelings or opinions. Now, why would anyone 
want to believe something that is not evidently, probably, or even possibly true. That's irrational, but that's the point. People most often embrace religion for emotional reasons or out of fear rather than logic or reason, and they're very susceptible to what an entire community of their peers passionately insist that they must believe or be ostracized and bastardized if they don't. Remember that religion rewards belief, not works, and threatens to punish lack of belief while promising to forgive any sin as long as you believe, and you're supposed to believe on authority rather than evidence, so gullibility is the sole criteria for redemption. No goals are achieved directly by God, but rather by believing in God. So believers believe in belief, often as a willful act of deliberate self-deception, wherein they may find any excuse, however feeble, that satisfies their own desperate rationalization, and call that evidence. Like if the laminin molecule assumes literally the simplest of all possible constructs, that's somehow supposed to imply a God and override anything we know to be true in science? Things like that seem good enough for the people who say, look how the glory of God is evident in the sunset. But not in the children's cancer ward. Don't look over there. And don't look at parasites either. Just look at the awe and don't wonder. And consequently, the biggest difference between reason and faith is the difference between knowledge and belief. Reason wants to improve understanding of whatever turns out to be true, regardless what that is, while faith pretends to know what no one even can know and demands that we swallow all the required doctrine without question, without reservation, without reason, and not even consider anything else, regardless whether it's true or not. The truth is what the facts are. But if it doesn't matter what the facts are, then it doesn't matter what the truth is. That's why the faithful tell me they're still going to believe whatever they want to believe, no matter what, even if it's not true doesn't matter. So defenders of the faith are likely to be duped by the Bible's description of how to make believe. And here we have things hoped for but not seen, which is the basis of faith, believing things without evidence. And then we're looking at things that are not seen or convincing yourself of what isn't there or can't really be true. Equally important in this case is another fallacy called confirmation bias, not seeing what is seen so that you don't risk challenging your faith. And this denial of objective perspective is sometimes described as Let's use our biblical glasses. Every logical fallacy has been used as an argument for God, and every argument for God is a logical fallacy. But the most common of all fallacies among religious believers is question begging, being the circular argument routing back to an assumed conclusion. This is also a product of the mind projection fallacy, where subjective impressions are assumed to be objectively real, as if even imaginary things undoubtedly exist, and that anyone who doesn't share the same delusion is simply written off as dishonest or foolish. Now, to show you what I mean, let's see a presentation of all these fallacies being demonstrated at the same time. To look out at this and the heavens declaring the glory of God and deny the existence and reality of God makes you a fool. There is no doubt about that. There is absolutely not one shred of observable evidence for evolution, but there is evidence of God's creative handiwork all around us. Of course, the truth is that there has never been a single verifiably accurate argument of evidence indicative of miraculous creation over biological evolution or any other avenue of actual science. Not one, period. There is no fact that implies that God is even possible, much less probable, and there's certainly nothing to indicate such a thing. Nor is it even logical. Since God is supposed to exist outside of our reality, then he does not exist in reality. There is no supernatural anything that has any determinable reality anyway. 
There is no truth to any of that. Nothing we can show to be true and thus actually know. All of it is indistinguishable from the illusions of delusion from a land of pure imagination. But there is an overwhelming preponderance of observable evidence for evolution, beginning with the fact that evolution actually happens even under direct observation, that biodiversity and complexity do increase naturally as alleles vary in increasing distinction in reproductive populations, where several definitely beneficial mutations have been verified to occur and are inherited by descendant sets, and each such variation is accelerated in genetically isolated groups. And then there's the fact that multiple independent sets of biological markers do exist to trace these lineages through the genome, even to a sequence of phylogenetic clades, wherein we can prove that birds are a subset of dinosaurs in the same way that humans are a subset of apes, primates, eutherian mammals, and vertebrate deuterostome animals. The collective genome of all animals has been traced to its most basal form, and those forms are also indicated by comparative morphology, physiology, and embryological development. And then there's the fact that every animal on Earth has determinable relatives, either living nearby or evident in the fossil record, which holds hundreds of transitional species, even according to the strictest definition of that word. All of these are objectively verifiable facts that are also positively indicative of evolution, making them evidence for evolution. And not only do they not also align with creationism, they contradict it as a competing alternative, being evidence against creationism. So we're not both looking at the same evidence. Religious extremists won't look at or for any evidence at all. Recently I debated a Christian apologist over whether Christianity was dangerous. If you didn't see that debate, the summary is that I showed numerous examples of how Christian clergy, politics, philosophy, and doctrine were all individually dangerous, even in tiny doses. But contrary to my opponent's objection, I wasn't arguing that Christians were dangerous. I argued that Christianity was dangerous, as all religions are. And that one is particularly dangerous because it prohibits free thought, makes one susceptible to deception by design, and because the doctrine itself is misleading and teaches dangerous things with detrimental effects. Even the slightest acceptance of Christianity still requires some denial of natural science, even if it's just making believe things that are not evidently or even possibly true, like the soul, for example, because you have to believe that or else. You'll face the empty threat of a fate worse than death if you don't make yourself believe. There's a definite danger to your ability to reason if you've been conditioned that, what, that you must believe man-made mythology of impossible absurdity and for no good reason, even when all the evidence says otherwise. Christianity is dangerous to children because they're told that they're born defective and need to ask forgiveness for even being born at all and that they'd better not think, think rationally about that or they'll burn in hell. Intellectually damaging child abuse. My opponent erroneously dismissed my entire argument as if it was all irrelevant and ironically the data he provided for his side was largely irrelevant to the question we were debating. I noticed several viewers comments describing his argument as a dodge tantamount to the no true Scotsman fallacy. He also criticized me for things I never said, and he ignored much of what I did say. For example, when I pointed out that Jesus himself promoted dangerous superstitious pseudoscience as well as racism, slavery, and estranging families for the sake of his cult, my opponent said that was just Christians behaving badly, as if Jesus is only human and an embarrassingly ignorant and poorly behaved Christian, and that I shouldn't judge Christianity based on the Christ when I pointed out how Christian doctrine commands that queer folk should be murdered simply for being LGBTQ, my opponent said that it was unfortunate that some Christians interpret the Bible to mean what it says, as if we can't judge Christianity over what it actually teaches either. So from my perspective, 
Uh, my opponent's argument seemed to be that Christianity isn't dangerous so long as you don't really believe too much of it or if you ignore what the scriptures say, that just believing is safe enough if you don't act on that belief. As long as you limit your religion to community unity, you're probably fine, depending on which church it is, and as long as you ignore other religious communities too. So I came out of that debate thinking I had obviously won hands down and that my opponent simply failed to perform. I still think that. But of course, Christians say the Christian won because they overlooked everything that he overlooked, which I think is typical. But there was one thing I said in that debate that got a lot of backlash in subsequent posts and videos, and that was this. Faith is not just a synonym of trust. It's a belief that is based on logical fallacies, arguments from authority, or subjective impressions. Anything but scientific evidence. To my experience, many Christians will admit that faith is a belief that is not based on evidence. When I debated Kent Hovind, he admitted that over and over again. Every time he said that anything you believe is a matter of faith if you can't prove it. And Frank Turek admitted this too in the title of his book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, implying that you either base your belief on faith in lieu of evidence, or you base it on evidence which neither requires nor desires faith. William Lane Craig's notion of reasonable faith is an oxymoron. Reason and faith are in stark contrast. Although believers and unbelievers do use the same words with very different meanings. Those who prefer reason over faith define belief as what we think is apparently true, but that we don't know to be true because we can't sufficiently prove it. If you can't show it, you don't know it, and you shouldn't say that you do. Those who prefer faith over reason seem to treat belief as an act of will, of mind over matter, through the power of positive thought, consciously convincing themselves or literally make-believe. And then they profess their dogmatic conviction as if it were certain knowledge, which it's not. I was taught that forcing yourself to believe unbelievable passages from the Bible was called eating the word. Over the course of my life, I've heard many admissions that these may be what the facts are, but I prefer to believe this. Or why would I want to believe what you believe? Why can't I believe what I want to believe? Why does it have to be true before I believe it? And my favorite was when a believer said that I shouldn't correct his mistaken beliefs because he has the right to be wrong. That's why Jesus and Krishna are both personal gods, the voices in your head that you have conversations with, who understand and agree with everything you say and who know everything you know, but can never reveal any knowledge you couldn't already know. I should say, reveal any accurate knowledge anyway. I would say that that's like having an imaginary friend, but it's not like that. It is that. That is exactly what it means to have a personal relationship with whatever god it is. It is literally your imaginary friend. It's all just imagined. I remember a YouTuber who said that if you use your imagination, you can imagine details and fossils that would allow you to deny their significance as transitional. Because it's not about what is objectively true. It's about finding some way to make yourself believe something else. Denying reality, if you have to, to believe what you want instead. But not every Christian will make that admission. Some believers try to argue that every authoritative or definitive source I could cite has it wrong, either saying that faith doesn't have to be independent of evidence, or worse, they'll turn it completely around and say that faith is based on evidence. They want to pretend that faith is rational when it isn't, or that they have evidence when they don't. A Facebook poll recently asked what arguments atheists are most tired of seeing, and my answer was the fallacy of false equivalence, wherein the believer either asserts that science is just another religious belief, not realizing how that denigrates their own religious position, or they'll say that faith is based on evidence. Either way, they're implying that I'm just as good as you are, or you're just as bad as I am, but no, we are not on two sides of the same coin. 
After 20 years of repeatedly hearing and re-refuting that same argument over and over and over again from the same people who will never admit or correct their errors, that, that has come to annoy me quite a bit, uh, obviously. You mentioned that in 20 years of rigorous research, you found no evidence of what you're looking for. But then when Michael pressed you on naming just one scholar who defines the word faith in the way you put it, you couldn't name one. So my question is, could it be possible that your research is maybe flawed, biased, and even maybe dangerous to the pursuit of truth? I have conducted this experiment, as I explained, over and over and over and over again, having this exact conversation at least once a week for 20 years. Not one Christian ever has produced evidence. He didn't either, nor can you. No one can. It doesn't exist. That's not the I debate demand tonight. that anybody, anybody in this room who calls yourself a Christian, if you think you have scientific evidence to indicate you're God, bring it. You ain't got it. I win. Believers often brag that they have evidence of God or the flood or intelligent design, but they get pissy when I point out that unverifiable anecdotal examples of subjective impressions of logically fallacious philosophical arguments are not evidence. That evidence must be a body of objectively verifiable facts that are positively indicative of or exclusively concordant with only one available position or hypothesis over any other. And bear in mind that most of my conversations on this topic are with religious extremists pretending that they have evidence of miraculous creation, which they can never produce, or they'll say that I don't have any evidence of evolution, and consequently I must have great faith to believe without any evidence. In either case, the topic demands that we're talking about empirical evidence, and I usually don't have to specify that, although I did in this debate because I knew my opponent was not a creationist. So at least a couple times a week over the last 20 years, I've heard the same old tired apologetics that there is evidence of God or creation. But let's take a look at what that evidence always turns out to be. Starting with logical fallacies, there is the God of the gaps, such that whatever you think science hasn't or can't explain is somehow explained by magic. I don't know, therefore magic. I know, Christians say they don't believe in magic, yet they believe in blessings and curses, which everyone understands are both magical enchantments. So whenever a Christian tells you to have a blessed day, they're literally telling you to have a magically enchanted day. They also believe in potions, faith healing, transformation, exorcism, necromancy, water bending, elemental spells, the golem spell, and even the magical power of some mysterious spoken words. They'll call it miraculous or supernatural, but they won't call it magical, even though all of that is obviously magic. If Moses and the Egyptian mages both perform the same trick the same way, it's only magic for them. But it's not magic for him because of the logical fallacy of special pleading. The point is that anything that is not explained by science is unexplained. It doesn't mean it is, is explained by God. The gaps in our knowledge are not evidence of any God. Every time we've ever blamed anything on the supernatural, it turned out to be wrong, and the real explanation was always a revelation of whole new fields of study previously unimagined and far more complex than the mystical excuses we made up in our ignorance. The God of the gaps is often used in conjunction with another fallacy called shifting the burden of proof. Believers hate the burden of proof more than vampires hate garlic, and they will push it far away, as if I have to disprove every empty assertion of impossible absurdity rather than expect them to justify their claims like any honest person would. It's a fallacy because positive claims require positive evidence. The burden of proof is always on the one making the positive claim. If you say there is a God, I can respond to that saying, no, there isn't. 
and I don't have any burden to prove the negative, nor am I necessarily making a negative claim when I reply by rejecting or calling out the bluff of your unsupported positive claim. Hitchens Razor says that what is asserted without evidence may be dismissed without evidence. So if I don't accept your assertion, that's your failure and your burden, not mine. You have to show the truth of it or admit that there is no truth to it. But none of the many and varied faiths of this world could do either of those things. So they can't be based on evidence, and there is literally no reason to believe any of them. The God of the Gaps fallacy is a combination of other fallacies, arguments from ignorance and incredulity combined with question begging, the circular argument routing back to the assumed conclusion. This is the most pervasive fallacy we see at the root of every religion, and we see it demonstrated nearly everywhere the Bible talks about faith. If something happens to exist, you simply assume that God did it, without question, without reservation, and without reason, meaning you believe it without evidence. If you redefine reality as creation, then through the fallacy of presupposition, and that is a fallacy, you will presuppose a creator, whereas calling it reality wouldn't require a realtor. The evidence most often cited in circular reasoning is that the claim is somehow evidence of itself, that the magic book of fables is the absolute unquestionable and infallible word of God because the magic book of fables says so. What is the evidence that the book is correct? The book itself, and absolutely nothing else. This is also a false dichotomy fallacy because it ignores the whole of the similarly sacred and divinely inspired holy books of all other religions. Unless you want to pretend that Hinduism is not only the oldest religion in continuous practice, but that its library of sacred scriptures would qualify as far more evidence than Christianity. None of that qualifies as evidence because circular reasoning is invalid and the claim in the book is not evidence that the claim in the book is correct. This is also a fallacious argument from false authority, since all of the allegedly holy books were definitely written by mere fallible men who obviously had no idea what they were talking about, ever. And that's why all of these compilations of man-made mythology are so embarrassingly wrong about practically everything and not reliable about anything they purport to be important. The same goes for all the different denominations of any one religion, where most were started by one lone heretic with his own interpretation, usually of things the scriptures don't really say. Yet, if I read what it actually does say, and thus I don't interpret it the way he did, his followers will accuse me of lying, even though there's no fact to indicate which of us got what right or wrong. Regardless, the interpretation of every denomination's founding patriarch is revered as absolute truth, even though none of those guys ever actually knew what the fuck they were talking about. Nor could they have. And in fact, most of them knew a lot less than the average person knows today. And this is why science says that arguments from authority are worthless. Revelation of the word is another circular argument, meaning no more than you believe that you believe. It doesn't matter if it's true, only that you believe it. Because they think that belief brings some benefit, even if it is all made up. That's why so many believers told me that if God didn't exist, it would be necessary to invent him. Some have even told me that if they had proof that what they believe isn't really true, they'd still believe it anyway. As irrational and intellectually dishonest as that obviously is, they don't believe in reason. They believe in belief, without reason, and against all reason. Because what reason would any believer accept and allow to change his mind? For me, it is enough that there is no evidence of gods or ghosts or anything supposedly supernatural, because there really isn't any. And I think that having no reason to believe something is a pretty good reason not to believe it. I don't even need evidence to the contrary, although... 
I have that too. Another fallacious example of evidence is revealed prophecies. And that almost sounds good until you start looking at what the prophecies actually say and how they were misinterpreted to be prophetic in the first place. I already did a video about that. And to say the least, they're each contrived, grossly contorted, and not at all compelling, and not in any sense evidence. Otherwise, most claims of religious evidence are in the category of untestable, unverifiable, anecdotal, subjective impressions. Most commonly, we hear about changed lives. And this is what Christians typically pretend to witness, where someone says that they were once a lowly, crack-addicted criminal until they found Jesus, or Allah, or Guru Nanak, or whoever, and turned their life around. If they actually did, which usually isn't the case, they're just not on rock bottom anymore. What they don't understand is that happens with every religion. I read the testimony of a Thai woman who said that her life improved immediately the instant she accepted Buddha into her life. I've said and read similar things from Hindus and Muslims too. That happens in every religion. So obviously it isn't evidence of any one religion. But it doesn't take religion either. It could be any new fixation. Even a new hobby could do that for you. You could take up LARPing and turn your life around. And one claim of supernatural evidence that a lot of people like is near-death experiences, which is about as compelling as past life remembrance or being visited by the ghosts of your deceased ancestors or receiving telepathic transmissions from extraterrestrial reptiles, and they are all equally incredible. We know of multiple cases where some impressionable child was influenced by highly religious parents to embellish an experience they never really had, only to recant that later when they learned that lying is bad. Otherwise, we see that people surviving significant stress to the brain tend to imagine whatever religious visions they were culturally conditioned to expect, or they don't have any memorable visions at all. If someone is having a near-death experience and sees a vision from their religion, and it's not even an Abrahamic religion, then that proves that this is not evidence of any religion. In any case, there is not one instance of a near-death experience that can be positively confirmed to support the patient's claim of supernatural knowledge. So even their best evidence is not evidence at all. At the very least, according to the philosophy of science, evidence must be true. So you have to be able to show that it is really true before you can honestly assert that it is. Otherwise, we should be skeptical. Maybe it's true, maybe it isn't. And we should be even more skeptical when what we're talking about isn't even possible. Especially when there has never been even one single case, when any type of supernatural claim was ever verified to be true or implicitly real in any sense. So there is literally no evidentiary basis to go on. Never an actual fact such as any scientist would need before claiming to have evidence of anything. All religious beliefs are still indistinguishable from pure imagination with no substance whatsoever. None of them can show they have any truth over any of the others. Yet, people profess belief in the empty promise of what they still do not see as if that counts as evidence. Or, if you're an idealist as opposed to an empiricist, then you could use the argument that one seminary professor did when he told me that evidence is not evident because facts are not factual, because nothing can ever be objectively verified, because reality is just a matter of opinion. It's whatever you want to believe that it is. And thus, there is no such thing as objective truth. That's the most irritating thing about arguing with believers. Not just that their position is so weak that they have to question or even deny reality as their only potential rebuttal of my evidence, 
but because it is dishonest to assert baseless speculation as though it were a matter of fact, presenting falsehoods as absolute truth and fallacies in place of logic while pretending to know things no one even can know are all tantamount to lying, as is the fact that they will never admit when they're wrong on any critical point. That's why they invented apologetics, the practice of systematically making up excuses to rationalize or justify or otherwise dismiss any and all evidence against their preferred belief. That they just gotta believe, no matter what, whether there is evidence for it or not. They know that being rational means being reasonable, uh, having sound reason and being able and amenable to be reasoned with. But faith is not like that, because believers can't be objective. They must defend the faith, even on pain of death, or else they'll risk the threat of a fate worse than death, which obviously wouldn't even be a threat if you didn't believe it already. That's why so many religious extremists post statements of faith, as if this were something to be proud of, wherein they admit that they believe what they do not on the basis of any evidence, but rather on the unquestioned authority of Scripture, because they believe it came from God, which it obviously didn't and couldn't have. They also admit that they have already rejected, without consideration, any and all evidence that might ever arise against their beloved doctrine. No faith ever allows evidence to overturn a doctrinal belief. And if you won't allow that, then you can't pretend that your faith is based on evidence. And they may say, I know for a fact that it's true, but no, you don't. A fact is objectively verifiable, and knowledge is demonstrable with measurable accuracy. It doesn't matter how convinced you are. Belief doesn't equal knowledge. If you can't verify the accuracy of your claims to any degree at all, by any means whatsoever, then you cannot actually know what you merely believe. Yet, they claim to know it anyway. And that's why faith really is an assertion of unreasonable conviction assumed without reason and defended against all reason. Some believers ignore how the word faith is actually used, and they taunt me as if I didn't know what the Greek word pistis meant, which also happens to be the base word of epistivist, meaning one who is without faith. My friend Bionic Dance made up that word, and I provided the symbol to represent it. So, of course, as an epistivist myself, I understand that pistis meant belief, trust, or confidence. Some say persuasion. Actually, it turns out to include uh, trust and trustworthiness, along with faith and faithfulness, too, presumably in different contexts. I don't know, it's all Greek to me. Even though these are all different words with very different implications in English, and only one of them means belief without evidence, the emphasis on all of them in the cited context is loyalty, that we are to trust, believe, or be persuaded by what we are told, simply because we're told to. That alone implies that it should be taken on authority rather than on evidence. So when my opponent asked me, All right, do you have any scholars that specialize in Koine Greek to say pistis means denying evidence or reason? The question made no sense. No one would say that persuasion, trust, or belief should be defined as denying evidence or reason, especially not without a qualifier as to what is denying this. Not even when the context always implies that you should be persuaded to trust what I say and believe it simply because I said so. We took one original Greek word, and turned its usage into a few different English words. In different citations, pistis may be used as belief, or as faith, or as persuasion, or trustworthiness. So although words like conviction would be defined in exactly the same way, whether that conviction is rational or irrational is determined by how it is used in that example. Importantly, we don't have to say that it's not based on evidence if evidence is never mentioned as even being relevant. That's what this comes down to. This is the core of the conflict between science and religion, being faith as contrasted with reason. 
or literally, fact versus fantasy. Science doesn't care what you believe. All that matters is why you believe it. What is your evidence? Science is only concerned with what is supported by evidence. Whatever is not supported doesn't warrant serious consideration. Come back when you have something to show. Until then, we have literally nothing to talk about. Now, for a rational person, what I believe, or rather what we consider to be more likely closest to the truth, is not a matter of choice. I am compelled to face the facts and accept evident realities, and I am obligated to change my mind according to my understanding of the evidence, regardless what I might rather believe. Even if I could choose to believe whatever I want, why would I want to believe something that is not evidently true, like religious believers do? I don't want to be fooled into basing my decisions on falsehoods. Only accurate information has practical application. Thus, my goal is to improve my understanding. So I only want the truth. The truth is what the facts are, what we can show to be true. Give me that. If in doing so you correct me, I will thank you because at least I won't be wrong anymore. But some people say, if believing in God is wrong, I don't want to be right. They cannot allow their minds to be changed. They consciously choose what they will or won't believe regardless whatever evidence there may be either way. And to my experience, devout believers can't even think hypothetically about the probability that they're wrong, where I can entertain any possibility as long as you show me that there is a possibility to consider, meaning some precedent or parallel or verified phenomenon indicating whether such a possibility exists. But religion doesn't have even that. Instead, we're told to believe impossible nonsense for no good reason. Religion tells us that we absolutely must believe, not because of any compelling evidence, but because the scriptures say so. They're supposed to be the word of God, and you're not allowed to question that. Heresy, blasphemy, and apostasy are all capital crimes precisely because this is about authority rather than any evaluation of evidence. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Instead, you're told that you will be able to perform wondrous miracles better than Jesus did if you can believe hard enough. And the only way to believe with all your heart is to make believe which is what your religion expects you to do. That isn't good enough for some people. God could easily provide evidence if he wanted us to have that, and God wouldn't need our faith the way bullshit salesmen do. And that's why they made up the story about doubting Thomas, wherein we're told that he was skeptical like you, but he saw evidence and you should be satisfied with that. As if that sort of hearsay counts for anything or could convince any reasonable person. That's when Jesus stresses the importance of believing without evidence. When he said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they believe. So, you are blessed if you believe what you did not see. Meaning, believe what I say because I say. Assume that you already have evidence, but do not ask for it. Then, like reading accounts of UFOs in the Weekly World News, that passage goes on to say that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. That's the whole game in Christianity, as in Islam also. Regardless of evidence, you have to believe, or else... You'll be rewarded in heaven if you do, and damned to hell if you don't. Neither the stick nor the carrot would be necessary if there was any actual factual evidence involved, and it's not about morality either. You are judged for eternity, not on whether you were good or bad in your brief moment on earth, but rather, you are ultimately judged over whether you readily believed improbable claims from questionable sources on insufficient evidence. 
You are saved by grace, not works. Your good works are like filthy rags. No matter how evil you are, all sins may be forgiven if you but believe. But if you don't believe, then it doesn't matter how good you are, because the only sin that will not be forgiven is the sin of disbelief. Thus, gullibility is the sole criteria for redemption. Were it not that way, there would be some provision wherein good-hearted, kind, and charitable atheists could get into heaven. But the Bible denies that such people can even exist, even when we know they do. My critics say that I should limit my use of the word faith to the way pistis was used in the New Testament, even though that word has multiple meanings in different contexts. I'm only talking about one. For example, Jesus didn't understand the pathogens causing any of the maladies he pretended to heal. He believed in demons. There is no evidence for that. It's not just him, either. Paul was a mystic. He believed that dreams were real means of communication and that whatever visions he might hallucinate, even during a stroke, was a revelation of something real from God or from angels. And he thought angels were wandering around lying to people at the same time. So go figure that out. If he could just figure out what the secret hidden meanings were, we, we see that in the same... We see that same paranoid conspiratorial pattern-seeking all through the Church Fathers. They're the most credulous authors imaginable, none of whom seem to understand what evidence or skepticism even are. Equivocation is the logical fallacy of mixing definitions or context with deceptive effect. For example, when I told Ray Comfort that I didn't believe anything on faith, he asked if I had faith in my wife, and he said that I must have faith that a plane won't crash before I board it. What he's talking about there is trust in evident probabilities based on past experience and so on. That's an evidence-based belief, not faith. Religious faith cannot equate to that, although some believers can't seem to understand that. Contrary to what my critics want to believe, faith is not simply a synonym of trust. It takes both a prefix and a suffix to turn trust into faith. Faith is a complete trust that is not based on evidence. If I were talking about trust, I'd say trust, which has to be earned on the basis of evidence. If we're talking about trust in the evidence, I would use the word science instead, which is the antithesis of faith. But even if we call it trust, believers actually argue that it's not that they trust without evidence. They have evidence, but their evidence is God, and they trust in God. They trust in a thing they cannot even know to be real on the mere assumption that it is. So even their claim of evidence is a circular argument requiring faith without evidence to believe it. Seriously, the question-begging fallacy is the best argument they've got. But God isn't evidence because God isn't evident. They want to say that, that their evidence is looking to God as the best explanation. But God isn't an explanation of anything, nor could he be, unless you're resorting to the God of the gaps fallacy, because to qualify as an explanation, it has to actually explain something, and magical miracles don't and can't do that by definition. You also have to be able to show that the explanation is accurate, but we can't do that with God either. All you can do is believe. So clap your hands if you really believe, and Tinkerbell will wake up again. As I have, I think, conclusively demonstrated here, faith really is a belief or trust or conviction that is not based on evidence. That's why no believer can cite the evidence that compelled them to believe in whatever religion they were raised to respect. Their belief was imprinted on them through indoctrination or inculcation because there is no evidence that could possibly lead to Christianity or to any other religion. So, dear believer, 
while you may say that faith is never for no good reason or in rejection of the evidence, I must contest that faith is always a belief that is held independent or regardless of evidence. You believe things that are not evidently true. Deny that all you want, but realize that what you believe is not even possible, and you already know that it could be entirely imaginary. But my position is demonstrably accurate, or else I wouldn't believe it. Because you have no evidence, not one fact that indicates any reality to your position at all, then there is no way to distinguish your religious belief from the illusions of delusion, to show that there's even a there there. If you can't show the truth of it, you shouldn't let yourself be so convinced that it's true. To believe that anyway requires faith, and that's what it means to believe something for no good reason. <laughs>